0: Uh, we are super excited to have co-founder of the New York Distilling Company, Alan Katz, on with us today. Alan, thanks for coming on the show, man. Cheers, guys. It's great to be with you.
1: Cheers. Absolutely. It is,
0: it is great to have you back on. So, uh, what, a couple months ago, maybe, uh, we uh, we had an opportunity to get on, do a barrel pick with you. As you can see in front of me, I think you're having the same. You I sure May have saved a bottle. I don't blame you. It is absolutely fantastic. But before we learn a little more about Alan Katz and the New York Distilling Company, uh, Dave Wondrich, and I hope I get this quote right. I believe he said or he labeled you as the uh, mysterious man of cocktails. Ah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, 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 so maybe we'll start getting to know you. Why is Alan Katz the mysterious man of cocktails?
1: Well, well one, let me give Dave. Good do, because, uh, boy, I'll try not to be too verbose here, but I owe Dave a lot. Uh, And it starts with a story. I was a burgeoning cocktail fanatic. I'd worked in different guises of hospitality. Uh, I was interested in front of the house and back of the house. And I had the opportunity to uh, go to Italy. And I had never been out of the country before. I was in my latter 20s, which is now a long time ago, unfortunately. <laughs> and I stepped into the greatest pile of good fortune that turned into a job of me working at a cooking school in northwest Tuscany. Oh, man. This is pre-Euro, pre-9-11. The dollar was monumentally strong. And I felt like a king. And I didn't have any money, but I thought I could do anything. And I had a roof over my head and I was cooking. So I had meals to eat. I bought a little used Fiat Panda, like a 1985 (laughs) tin box of a car. And I had one day off a week and I would take it as far as I could go, explore something new, and then bring it back to this farm where I lived. Once I got a flat tire on the way back up the hill to the farm. That's how, you know, the stroke of luck that I had. (laughs) But that experience impressed upon me a desire to learn more about the points of origin in different food and drinking culture. It was sort of like anthropology of gastronomy without getting too philosophical. And I came back to New York after about two years and I really was just at the right place, in my opinion, at the right time. And it was the late nineties and we were just on the precipice here of the eruption of cocktail culture that zoomed all over the country, all over the world. I'm not saying New York city was the only epicenter, but there was such energy here. And I always boil it down to the major factor is we don't drive here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't go out to get wasted, but I have the extra drink because I'm walking home in non COVID times. I'm taking a subway home and the interaction with bartenders in bars that are tiny and cramped and God willing, we'll get back to that day, was sexy and fun. And you say, I said to myself, where does this come from? And so in learning from the Italian aid experience of what the origins of that food culture was, I wanted to know American food culture. And we talked about this in some of our previous conversations. I became innately interested in barbecue of the American South. I can't wait, I'm getting ready to order order a smoker from Shirley's, I don't know if you know Shirley's, I can't wait. (laughs) I'm turning 50, so I'm getting myself a damn good birthday present so I can do backyard (laughs) barbecue authentically. But going back now, not quite 25 years. I went off the deep end on cocktails Mm -hmm. and I'm a, I'm a decent talker and I talk even better at a bar on a bar stool. (laughs) But a friend said, Hey, you've got to meet Dave Wondrich. And I was talking, I'll say it like I'm some big shot. I was talking all over town. (laughs) I was talking in the four bars that I went to. about. trying to research the cocktails of the jerry thomas era Mm. and for those that may have never heard the name jerry thomas was the perfunctory bartender of the mid to late 19th century and he wrote and published the first cocktail book the bon vivant's companion subtitled simply how to mix drinks (laughs) and if you were back in the day and at this point i'm back in the day I bought a second edition, in fact, two copies, second editions of the Bon Vivant's Companion for 35 bucks each. Nice. And there aren't ounce measurements, and you're not always sure what the bitters are or the syrups are. So I'm trying to recreate these recipes from this old cocktail book. That, ah, 35 bucks. Okay, I can do that. <clears throat> and I was telling friends about it who were in food and drink and who were in food and drink public relations, you've got to meet Dave Wandridge. So we met at an old restaurant on Barrow Street in the West Village called the Grange Hall. It's a great old New York street. It feels like you're in the, you know, Teddy Roosevelt eras uh, of old New York, 19th century, gas lamps, winding streets where the streets no longer go on a grid in lower Manhattan. And I met Dave there with a couple other friends, a great bartender by the name of Del Pedro, walks in, sees Dave, and we start getting rounds in Manhattan's. And I think I'm coming to the conversation like I know something about Jerry Thomas. I wanted to produce a consumer and trade event celebrating Jerry Thomas as if he was, you know, the American gastronome, you know, worthy of acknowledgement. We've got to Rec- reclaim if you will this monumental figure in american history and by the time i'm into the second manhattan i said i just better keep my mouth shut saying it you know internally to myself i better just listen to dave because this guy knows books worth more than i ever will not only about jerry thomas but about the era about the era in literature in music all the things you know we sort of have fun talking about after the second drink (laughs) by the third drink we're buddies it was a cold december night and we planned an event for that march march 23rd uh and it became really the launching point for what i would say in earnest has become my livelihood in distilled spirits Mm. and i say being in the right place at the right time coming off that event i I was the co-producer and everything wow Alan must be some knowledgeable, significant figure. I didn't know much. I was just very interested. I was making mediocre cocktails and I had the audience with Dave who introduced me to, you know, in, in, in my line of work, what we would consider the Mount Rushmore of bartenders and bar figures of Dale DeGroff and, and Gary Regan, God bless him, of a recent passing and Audrey Saunders and Julie Reiner and Robert Hess uh, and uh, a whole slew of other characters who became the bartenders for this event. And they all became in different guises, my mentors, Mm. but particularly Dave, Dale and Gary. And I spent enough time with Dave that I'll just answer from my perspective. If I was the man of mystery and cocktails, that I'm not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes I just was trying to search for where I would have the most fun within this industry. I was a very serviceable bartender in the late, in the mid to late nineties. And I came back to it in the early audies. I can't hold a candle to the professional bartenders that are working in mixology bars today. I can make really good drinks. I'd say it emphatically. I don't have the speed. And as I became a distiller, and like any business that you own and you put blinders on, I'm focused on our gins and our whiskeys every morning from 7 a.m. on. You do tend to lose the bandwidth to bring into focus all the other things that are going on in the industry. It's like running a restaurant. You don't know what's going on down the block because you're running your business. So I'm very fortunate in that. On a nearly weekly basis, I'm getting bottles sent to me and I do my best to try and keep up with, with what's going on. But uh, I try to pull down or separate any curtains of mystery. Uh, I think I just I got lucky and combined that with hard work. Did not come out of nowhere, but I wasn't one of the seminal bartenders of this era of the last 20 years, per se. But I would humbly and hopefully graciously say I've had some reasonable influence from an educational standpoint, an advocacy standpoint, and not only building the business my partners and I have at New York Distilling Company, but really having an open door to be a mentor to just about anyone else that wants to get in the beverage alcohol space. I had an hour-long call with someone who wants to get into sake brewing. You'd say, what does this guy know? Well, I've interacted with sake brewers. I've been lucky enough to go to Japan and visit them in person. I know the rules and regulations of opening this type of business, particularly in New York. So sure, let's get on the call. There's no charge for this sort of thing. We're trying to create as many opportunities as possible to celebrate as many avenues as possible in the industry.
0: Yeah. Good good to hear. Good to hear. And that's, um, Uh, yeah, that's, we weren't looking for the right answer. We were looking for your answer and, uh, we'll accept that as the gospel. So, uh, which will kind of lead us into some of the other conversation or some of the other questions, if you will, that, you know, the last time I think we spoke, we were really focused on the barrel pick kind of going through that, but, you know, and, and, and then kind of getting to know New York distilling a little bit fantastic uh pick that we did here i do have a few more samples i may dig I saved some just just in case you know i wanted to uh do some <laughs> comparison uh great reviews we haven't had anything that came back negative if anything it's been like hey when are we getting more when <laughs> are we getting more i'm like well you know i think that new york distillings uh i think they're coming into their own right now and and i think the single barrel program's kind of rocking for you guys right now right I'm, I'm delighted
1: i can't you know my my phone number i I suppose is more or less a public number. (laughs) If someone was to look it up, you could find it, but I can't tell you over the weekend. And this is, you know, master's weekend, the number of text messages I got with
0: photos of people drinking your barrel pick. Oh, it, was wow. so it
2: was I, great.
0: Wow. So, so I was going to ask, so that that's a question I was, I was probably saving that to the end, but you brought it up and, and, you know, as you've kind of progressed through your, uh, through the, the, the gastronomy cocktail experience and, and your upbringing, uh, you know, whether you're making somebody a meal, you're making somebody a cocktail, uh, you're, you're, you know, you, somebody's drinking a, a barrel that you distill that, that you've set on for, uh, what are we, six years and, yep. uh, four years and six months. Four years, so, six months yeah. yeah. What, what's, what's the best compliment that you've heard from somebody that you could get as, you know, you, you're producing it, you're making it. What, what's, what, when do you know that like, Hey, I did that one, right? Well, it's two things. One, you know, I'm glad you're drinking in Manhattan. It's funny. I'm drinking it neat
1: tonight, but my typical nature tends toward making it in cocktails. Um, On on our blend whiskey, on our flagship ragtime rye. Mm -hmm. On the single barrels, I'll drink it neat or uh, or on one ice cube. What I like to hear most of all about the spirits we distill is that someone doesn't describe it in a manner that compares it to something else.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I always thought, well, we're a distilling company. We're manufacturers. Part of the joy, a lot of it, is actually making it. And when it comes to whiskey, it's very much unlike gin. We're really aiming for top-notch consistency, batch to batch, bottling to bottling of our gin. The whiskey, particularly from a blending standpoint, there are some hallmarks that we want to hit, but we'll never get it exactly the same. On the single barrels, it's as much a learning process for us as it might be for someone drinking it. So we're not babies at this anymore, but we're just coming out of Adolescence. So, what I like is, and the way I describe our whiskey is very simply more than just wood. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't dislike wood, whether it's oak notes or cedar notes or even slightly piney notes that you can get in whiskey. It mm-hmm. depends on, you know, sometimes how long the oak has been seasoned. Mm-hmm. But I want more than just wood. I want And I don't need a pat on the back about it, but at least a recognition, one, that we made it, we made it all ourselves. And two, that we've earnestly taken the time to not just spit it out because we can say we made the whiskey. So to each their own, I'm ready to give a hug and a big kiss, mass kiss, I suppose, (laughs) to anyone that makes their own whiskey professionally. It's not easy. It takes commitment. It takes some sort of financial backing, no matter how much you're making. Um, but but we are stubborn and patient. Yeah. And so we only use 53-gallon barrels, one. But two, I think from the outset, as I said, we were, were earnest about our desire to let this whiskey sit and age, to allow us, one, to learn about it so that we could share it and describe it with other people. But two, by giving it that time to age— for our regular blends, we don't touch anything less than three years old. And our single barrels, you know, range four, five, six. We released one barrel for charity recently that was eight years old.
2: Oh, wow. And we
1: only got 81 bottles out of that barrel. That wow. cast but it allowed us to learn about some of our aging whiskey. But two to say, this is what time does to the whiskey. Maturing is an easy word for me from the flavor standpoint is... We're looking for that nuance beyond wood that, at least to be fair, I often associate with, quote unquote, craft whiskey in America. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause not, I mean, necessarily older doesn't mean better for a particular barrel, right? I mean, Correct. it's, it, it, it looks good on the label generally speaking and from a marketing standpoint, but you know, depending on um, what's in it, you know, what the, what the mash bill is, et cetera, where it's aged at, which I want to go there with you in a second on, you know, where you, you're still in different warehouses and, and what that's kind of done to you over the years, uh, not in a negative way, but you know, sure. how, how's that changed? But I mean, it's uh, I mean, I, I, I did poor a Need I saw you drink it and I'm like, yeah, well, okay, I got I got to go in. I'm gonna it. pour more.
2: So, Alan, you were talking about Italy and then how you got into cocktails and your curiosity and how that all shaped out. And Cal and I were talking about you talked about it on the last show we had. You know, you're all about rye. So, why rye? What was your tap root? How'd you get into it?
1: Yeah, I was born in Baltimore, uh, and and. I would say whatever my family—we have a small, tight-knit family at the time. Most of my relatives, uh, one set of aunt, and uncle, and cousins, my grandmother's, our little unit of four, including my sister. Whatever we did was, you know, reasonably steeped in some sensibility of heritage. It could be cultural. It could be. Uh, sports driven, you know, Orioles and Ravens the Colts at the time, then Ravens, but certainly the Orioles, uh, and, you know, going back to the St. Louis Browns it's like, if you're going to dig into something, dig in it all the way, it could have been religious or spiritual, whatever it was, it was like, well, let's, let's get beyond the surface. And, and that was sort of the tenet of how to live life, how to suck the most out of it. And I can associate it with my travels in Italy. You know, I have, I I joked with my wife when I first met her and we got married in less than a year of meeting each other. Uh, And I was telling her about my experience in Italy. And and when I came back, I got into other endeavors that afforded me the opportunity to go back to Italy for business 20 plus times. And I was so fortunate. And I was telling her about one of my favorite places uh, in, in Northern Italy, near torino near turin italy and she said oh i've been to that region and i got very excited you know as a guy (laughs) i got oh my my girlfriend i think i'll marry this woman Uh, this is a turn on she's been there she loved it i said oh where did you go
0: and she said i don't really remember i was there for a day (laughs) (laughs) you're you're thinking this is going to be the conversation of the night and weeks and years to come right i've been there for a day so for me as a traveler i go one place and suck
1: everything out of it. I didn't yeah. go to, you know, eight countries in 12 days. There's not that many places I've been to, but I like going someplace and uncovering as, as much as I can. And, and interestingly enough, and quite randomly, uh, my grandfather, who I did not know well, but had a business uh, that when he passed away, my father took over uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s, building roof trusses. Yep. And lo and behold... It was situated just outside of Baltimore City on a property that used to be uh, a series of rickhouses. And there was one Mm. rickhouse left that our family called the Whiskey Warehouse. And it was like my playground. My parents wanted to grow, you know, Brussels sprouts uh, and mushrooms in there. And, you know, ahead of their time, it never panned out. But it was like a 10-story rickhouse. And, And my parents, you know, in just a social way, they drank every day. And ultimately, my grandmother came to live with us. She had a drink every night. And there was no fear around alcohol. I wasn't chugging beers in high school, but it wasn't like, oh, don't touch that. Mm-hmm. And, and to be from Maryland and have that sensibility from my parents, who gave me a broad scope from a cultural standpoint around many things, around business, around sports, uh, around American history, uh, you know, the, the context from an alcohol standpoint, which I came to later was one of the points of origins for American rye was Maryland. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was 17, I was drinking Pikesville rye Manhattan's oh, wow. and Pikesville rye in, in the bottle. I'm sure I have it here. Oh my goodness.
0: Uh, heaven Hill owns it now. I'm not sure, uh, who owned it at the time, but uh, fantastic, I can grab a bottle if you don't have one, but
1: well. I know I've got it. It's got to be here. Here
0: it is. You know, it was in in this bottle, and and oh, I see why you got it. My bottle looks nothing like that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you have the new
1: Pikesville rye. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a great whiskey at one ten proof. Yeah, I got that back here too. So, Pikesville. There you go.
0: Am I right on the proof? Uh, I think it's, uh, hundred, uh, 110,
1: 110. Exactly. 110, yeah. So I, I love that. That that's a recent edition of the last decade. And this has been discontinued. So when I found out, if you will, a little in advance that they were discontinuing Pikesville Supreme straight rye whiskey, uh, I went and got three, three, nine liter cases of it. So I'm winding my way. I got my life supply, <laughs> I'll part with a bottle from time to time, but this is, if you've never had it before, and if you don't have it, you probably never will. You might find it on a random bar somewhere. Um, this is like Rittenhouse Jr. Mm. Okay. It's a little bit younger. Rittenhouse is bonded, 100 proof. This is 80 proof. Okay. So, I'm out with my grandmother, who at that point is you know near 80 years old, drinking Manhattans in downtown Baltimore, She's like, get get it, get us two, exactly drinking Pikesville rye. And that was the origin for me. And, and I just, you know, from a business standpoint, as I came back to it and was looking in earnest for that sense of authentic American gastronomy, it's like, Oh, what do you know? That Jerry Thomas book features a lot of cocktails with rye. Mm -hmm. I love bourbon. Mm -hmm. I like a lot of different whiskey. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to say with any denigration about bourbon, it's one of my favorite spirits of all time. Mm-hmm. But I was interested in points of origin, points of difference, and that's really how I got into rye was saying, "Wow, well here's something to reclaim locally." One Yeah, rye whiskey was being made in New York not the way it was in Maryland and Pennsylvania in the 17 and 1800s from a marketing standpoint. But it was being made here, and it's a great geographic region, particularly upstate New York, for growing rye grain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was interested in finding out, well, okay, you know, going back 20 years ago, the only ryes you could find were really being made in Kentucky, which is a great place to make whiskey. Right. But their focus is on bourbon, and it still is, even as rye's interest and popularity has grown to a significant degree – you know Most of those ryes, including the Pikesville here, including the Pikesville you have, the Rittenhouse that I grew up on as a bartender, Wild Turkey, Old Overhold, are all, you know, 51, 52% rye in the Mashville. They are great whiskeys. It is inarguable, period, emphatically. <laughs> Fantastic whiskeys. What I've been interested in is saying, well, what if we went back, you know, not just to the Jerry Thomas era, but what if I went back to the founding of Rye, New York, a Northern suburb just outside of the Bronx. Why was it founded as Rye, New York? They grew rye there, lots of integrated farmers. He was, was gonna get
2: that one wrong by the way.
1: Yeah, you know, we, we, we talked about it in a previous conversation too. Sure. We've done research that discovered uh, a family from Leicester, England that came here pre Rye, New York and started planting ultimately their own hybrid of rye. Their family name was Horton. And ultimately, we were gifted 10 seeds of Horton rye variety that we started planting 11 years ago. Oh, wow. Our hope is from 10 seeds to first bottling that either next fall or spring of 2022, we'll release the first Horton rye in centuries. Wow. At a mash bill that's higher. So our mash bill is 75% rye. Go wow. ahead. Put, put us on the list. Put us on you the guys. list. <laughs> uh,
0: so, so I want to, before we get too far away from that, and I know you, you may want to talk a little more about the Horton rye uh, and uh, because that is a magnificent, magnificent story. I've yeah. heard it a couple of times uh, just from going from 10 grains and you got to get to a million in your process, but I, I'm a little, I want to touch on, so the Maryland style rye, and and I'll, I'll get into the kind of rye push or, or, or the rye revolution that's happening right now, but growing up in Maryland, uh, the family ties, and and now you're like, nope, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the segue thing. I'm going to go and create my own, uh, I'm going to screw it up, but my my own classification of rye, and it's going to be empire rye. You bet. W- why inspired to go with Uh, because, because it's, I would just say from personal experiences, I've never distilled or made liquor. I've drank a lot of it and whiskey, but it's, it's always, generally speaking, it's easier to do something that's already there developed and, and you can still create something good, something that's palatable, something that people want, but you really kind of took a path and you said, Hey, I'm going to do it a little different. And, and I'm going to reinstitute uh, or, or institute uh, a ride that that was and had a place. It just didn't have a name. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, some of it is, is personal interest. Some of it is, I'd be honest, a little bit of ego. I'm not saying this is my Roy Hobbs moment, if you know what I mean. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, it's not my, you know, predisposed nature. But I don't want it to just be good. That's for sure. And I think if I think about it in retrospect, I had some really interesting privileges and benefits starting when I did uh, with my partners here in New York. And I had had a, I hate the word, but let's say a career in a lot of different guises of distilled spirits and cocktails for a decade or more prior to starting New York Distilling Company. And it had afforded me the opportunity to meet Parker Beam and Jimmy Russell and then Eddie Russell and Harlan Wheatley and Dave Pickerel. And the list doesn't go on forever, but it was it was the Mount Rushmore <laughs> of American whiskey distillers. I was about to
0: say, you just read off the who's who list there. And, so.
1: and in particular, Parker Beam became uh, uh, emotionally, for me, a good friend and mentor, and I was able to spend – for what for me was considerable time with him in the distillery, in the Rick Houses of Heaven Hill. And it wasn't like he was teaching me the science of distilling, but I was able to glean a lot from him about what I wanted to do and about the nature of blending. And you've got to trust your own palate for certain. But that's what I knew I wanted to make rye. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what's let's, let's try. You know, we're not out to conquer the universe here, but why not be a bigger fish in a smaller pond? And I thought, boy, and I I could rattle off. I don't have a favorite bourbon, but I, I can rattle off several of my favorites that are my go to's. Evan Williams single barrel for every day. I mean, I. Let me have it. <laughs> yeah,
0: a that, that, of, you know that's a, that's a sleep that's a hell of a sleeper pick right there that most people are gonna walk by for the price. It drinks a lot hotter than it actually says it is. Yeah. not not in a bad way, but yeah, you
1: know, different different things from wild turkey and jim Beam for cocktails, uh, you know, old granddad uh, overproof. I'll have it every day in an old fashioned. There's so many bourbons that I love. And I did think to myself, boy, if I, if I have the fortune of doing this the rest of my life, I likely will never achieve the quality that these whiskeys have achieved.
2: Hmm.
1: It's not quite like cognac where you're putting down barrels (laughs) for future generations to blend. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. (laughs) But that also drove me to say, well, there's not much in the rye whiskey space at the time. And there's certainly not much in the space where we wanna bump up that that percentage of rye in the mash bill. And in the context of empire rye, as you mentioned, start to bring into context, the point of origin of the grain, not just the variety, but where it was grown, who grew it, under what conditions, you know, we haven't quite started yet, but with our with the Horton, we'll get into details of what year the grain was planted, what year, you know, it was harvested the next year. Right. But when it was distilled, when it was in the barrel, and when it was dumped, as part of the story about repuzzling, putting these pieces back together of this heirloom
0: variety. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah, I, I mean, I think yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really you know, and and I guess that's I was again, I wasn't steering you somewhere, just to hear it from you know from you personally, the guy that's doing it, and or one of the folks that are doing it, right, and at New yeah. York Distilling, and it. it's good to hear that you know you're kind of putting this, uh, you're putting the history pieces of the puzzle together. So it's telling a story about what's in the bottle, not just, Hey, here it is. And it's in the bottle. I mean, it's got some, you know, it, it's, it's like a good cocktail, right? I mean, what's your, the, the, the key ingredients got some backbone to it. It really stands up to uh, the whole story around what New York distilling is and, and what you're producing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To, you know, to, to follow through on it, there's six founding members of the Empire Rye association, I think there's probably close to 20 people, 20 distilleries in New York making their own versions of Empire Rye. The unique thing for us, again, with, with great humility, but also purpose is the only whiskey we make is rye.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I yeah. think we're the only distillery in New York that only focuses on rye. So the, the concept of Empire Rye is also about marketing and about storytelling. Certainly, we want to let people know these interesting things points of origin and and why there is a point of difference, say, between most of the rye from Kentucky or Tennessee or higher rye mash bills like Whistlepig or rye from Texas like Balcones. You know, there's a great sort of underlying story that can be shared and spread across the cross section of the category.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're doing a good job of it. And you're you're being way too humble, and there's <laughs> nothing wrong with being proud of producing a quality product that that you're not afraid to put put in front of people and uh, and and wait for their response. Yeah, good. Yeah, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, so let's see. I want to go down the direction of. So we talked a lot about we have in the past. We you've referenced uh, when you when you first got started. And this may be the case today that you were warehousing in different areas. Yes. Um, and, and it's, you know, some closer to the water, some maybe a, a little higher elevation. And is that still the case with with where you are today? And is that yeah. by choice? And are you are, do, are you do you like where that's matured to today? And is that something you're going to continue to do?
1: Well, it's an opportune time to discuss it, because let, let's be real honest. It can be philosophical and romantic and even scientific, A lot of it is just about the economics. We are a small business, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to find
0: our own path, as many, many businesses and people are. And the past past 12 months has been very easy on small businesses, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: we're still here. Exactly. First thing. But but in terms of where we age and why a lot of it truly is economics. We do age in Brooklyn and I would call it a token number of barrels you know, up to 100 barrels at a time. Mm-hmm. Most of our barrels are mid-state in Orange County, New York. If you're not familiar, that's about 90 minutes north of New York City without traffic. <laughs> uh, and and we have a few thousand barrels there. And opportunistically for this conversation, we just got approved from the TTB, that's the federal agency that oversees alcohol in this country. Uh, we just got our approval for a new rack house up in the Finger Lakes, oh, cool. right where our grain is grown. Yeah. And so we'll sort of have, over time now, a comparative set from Brooklyn, Mid-State, and Upstate. And it's really about temperature. Yes, in Brooklyn, conceivably, you know, we're 10 minutes from the East River. And as the crow flies a few miles from the Atlantic Ocean, I don't tend to think that that seafaring influences having much direct uh, contact with our our barrels in Brooklyn. Right.
2: Right.
1: I think it's more just where it is. The weather conditions can be a little bit different, mainly by temperature, maybe a little bit by humidity, but we'll, we'll see over time Um, because it'll also have influence uh, all of our, you know, you can get down to the real nitty gritty details. All all of our uh, warehouses are corrugated tin. Um, but depending on temperature and humidity, you know, some barrels might take a dip in proof in the early years. Some might increase. And, and those are the types of things we're really looking at as we learn about these spaces and where we might over time, we have not done any of this yet, but it's on the radar, mm-hmm. but over time say, okay, this space for, a hundred or 200 barrels is opportune for single barrels mm-hmm. or this space is opportune for Horton or for bottled and bond of the future. Those are things we're still learning on a very regular basis. Ooh, sneak sneak peek. Got a B.I.B.
0: coming out, <laughs> do we? You bet. Well, the bottle and bond is out. It's. Oh, all right. I missed that. It's awesome. I, I'll send you some.
2: Oh, cool. All right.
0: Yeah, we got to. Uh, I dip- love it. Yeah, we'll have to get uh, Bernie on the show and uh, drink with him. We'll let we'll let him do the uh, put it to the test, so, which I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it's awesome. You know, I, I mean, as you're talking and you know, and you're going through some of these things, I'm just thinking about some of the comments that um, you know, birdies and bourbon, right? And everybody's like, "Oh, it's a rye." Hey, do you like uh, do you like rye or you know what what's the and you know it, it was uh, opportunistic, if you will, that that we had an opportunity to do this with you, so we're very appreciative of it. And you know, I, I kind of I'm kind of. It up to people, and I'm like, you know, like eh, I don't know if I'm into rye, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> now I, I'm in a class of you're. I, we're not professionals or expert at anything, but I would say that you could put you, you can put a rye in front of somebody. And you're getting kind of this this uh, if you're a bourbon drinker and you're used to that kind of a sweet uh, caramel, brown sugar, a little bit of oak. But, you know, and lower proof, if you're drinking like the you know Evan Williams single barrel, right, lower, lower and proof and that, that, that dog. And it's a great bottle. But you go to this and I'm like going, I wouldn't hesitate to put this ragtime rye in front of anybody that says I'm a bourbon drinker. I, I don't like rye. And I'm like, yeah, well, hold on just a second, because this is going to be a completely different experience. And you pulled a few off the shelf or, or you mentioned a few that, you know, there are there. And I actually left a comment for a guy earlier before we got on. And I'm like, there are a lot of a lot of boutique distilleries putting out a lot of good rye that they've sat on for three, four five years that you're not going to get that that what people would consider a traditional kind of bitey rye. I I think this kind of gets you into, even though this is a single barrel, you're getting to like, okay, it's really an override bourbon.
1: Well, that's fine. Uh, I'll I'll take it. And I'm not looking for converts, but for people (laughs) to have an open-minded experience. You know, a lot of it, uh, you know, people might know, you know, the history of rye whiskey, in the country and assume as much has been written about that rye whiskey seemingly fell out of favor with prohibition. I don't tend to take that as factual, you know, for me, a lot of it in my personal belief was about marketing. Mm -hmm. And it was in the post-World War II era where you had the likes of Life magazines and Gourmet magazines that were of such influence about what people put on their dinner table tables, mm-hmm. what kind of siding you put on the side of your house, the colors that you used, uh, you know, those those types of publications became the ultimate influence in middle class and upper middle class America and there was concerted marketing efforts in my opinion and I've got the pages that in my opinion back me up and the cartoons that it was right. m- marketing out of the bourbon centric southern states that painted rye from the likes of maryland and pennsylvania and indiana and ohio and even up you know even into the upper midwest as the blue collar drink mm. if what? you want to be genteel
0: and proper have a bourbon <laughs> Well, and, go back and look. Into, I mean, the, the era that you're talking about early times was yeah. the yeah. urban of choice. And you tell somebody now that, hey, early times was the most popular brand on the shelf. And everybody's going to say bullshit. Right. <laughs> there's there's no right. way that's possible. Right. And, Unless you're we're alive. You know, for me, what came out of prohibition was a loss of alcoholic
1: taste buds. Mm. Uh, yeah. Thank God I've never been on, you know, ration stamps as my grandparents were, you know, to say, you can only buy this much, or you only have this much butter and this much salt. I love to yeah. show, and I spill more salt on the floor than I put in the pan sometimes. <laughs> i never lived under those conditions, but, and it's not that alcohol was gone, but over time, the access to quality alcohol certainly diminished, and I think it affected our collective taste buds, and, and that combined with marketing, to me, is really what started the decline in interest in American rye whiskey because it became a different cocktail culture. Ultimately, there was tiki, which led – tiki is great for me. I love it. But it led to a lot of artificially sweetened and colored drinks. Sure. And then we went off the deep end on everything just loaded with sugar where you don't even finish one cocktail. Mm-hmm. So part of it is this reclamation of our own taste buds to say, wow, yes, I like – the, the umbrella of flavors in bourbon, I love it. And obviously there's a great range of it. If I throw at least my rye whiskey and those that I really appreciate into the mix, it's like, okay, it's not completely void of those flavors. It's just got a few different flecks and accents. Sure. So you know, Part of the reason we like maturing our whiskey the way and the length that we do is, as you describe it, sort of, it's not a hybrid in its essence, but it has some of those flavors those peach and cherry and honey notes, but also a little bit of that rye punch that if you are mixing it, whether with an ice cube or vermouth or a little bit of sugar for an old fashioned just tends to balance the drink out.
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And yeah. And I hope you didn't take that the wrong way when I Not said it all. was a, was it was a bridge. I did. I, I'm Not just saying all. that's uh, yeah, it's uh it, you, you guys have done a really nice job. So, what's um, what's changed, if, if you will, over the course of. Uh, your well, I guess uh, I don't need. We don't have to go down the single barrel route. But has your has has what? Did you have something in mind when you started? When you said, "Okay, we're going to blend our first barrel," and, and and I've got an expectation. And I'm thinking about your cocktail background, right? Because you're thinking, "I'm going to have, a, I'm going to taste this, this, and this, and then I'm going to start mixing." And and by the way, the Jerry Thomas Project in Rome is my favorite bar. So I don't what know if you've been there. And it's, I love that place. But I'm I'm thinking as a cocktail guy. Yeah. You're thinking, hey, I'm, I don't know exactly what I'm going to put in there. But I mean, the art of a great cocktail is it doesn't have to be the perfect cocktail, meaning equal parts or, or, or to your point, reading through a recipe. It's I'm going to I'm going to kind of size this up. So did you have something in mind and did it change?
1: I sure did. You know, for me, I had a stock line when we started that I still love and I think could be applied to any livelihood except surgery or medicine. <laughs> and the line was, and I tell it to people all the time was I know what I'm doing, but I've never done it before. <laughs> and and that's how I felt when we started the distillery, I had been to nearly 30 distilleries at that point. When we started New York distilling company, I had not formally, but I had apprenticed with several people that, as I said, became, You know, great friends and mentors of mine, great influences as well. And I was ready to get in the saddle, so to speak. Sure. And you hone in on one part, and that's the romance and functionality of production. And then there's, all right, we were fortunate enough. We raised all the money we wanted to. In the last, you know, not as devastating time as this, but in the last downturn of the economy, Mm -hmm. you know, 2008 era, the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And we were delighted to say, okay, we can get ourselves off the ground. But there's a cap to it. We didn't have an endless spigot of money to just say, well, we'll just make it in one day when we're happy to do so. We'll release it at a certain point. You got to start making money back on your investments. Sure. And. In my mind, when we started, we were gonna have a two-year straight rye whiskey. Hmm. And there weren't very many of those at the time either. Certainly exceedingly few on the craft whiskey quote-unquote scale. Sure. And at two years, just shy of two years, we started tasting our barrels in earnest. Our first year, I think we filled 26 barrels.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> our, our sort of stated but unwritten goal at this point in time is to fill a thousand barrels a year, mm-hmm. full size 53 gallon barrels. All right. I will also tell you honestly, we have never achieved that goal. <laughs> I think the most we've ever filled is like eight hundred and eighty some barrels in a year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It depends on the harvest, you know how much new make we get out of the harvest, how many barrels we have pre-ordered. You know, a year, months in advance, and all those things come together as part of the business respect of, in this case, making our rye whiskey. So at two years, we tasted it. It wasn't bad. And I wasn't down on myself. It just wasn't as interesting as I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, if we don't release it now, I was convincing myself, we're not
0: really losing money. (laughs) We're deferring it. This is is Alan in third person over here. (laughs) We're we're deferring these
1: streams of revenue to when we do release it. We're we're buying futures. We're buying futures. Yeah. Except it was our money (laughs) or the the money of our investors. Sure. Sure. And, but okay. And we were, again, you're still learning all the time about your own product. At this point, we well know that we lose in some combination about 5% to absorption Mm-hmm. and about 5% a year to evaporation. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's going to be another 5% loss. Maybe we'll factor that into our, our costs, our wholesale pricing, et cetera. At three years, and just shy of, I started tasting again with our partners, and I liked it a lot more. We were starting to get that nuance of more than just wood. Mm-hmm. Was it the finality of it? No, it wasn't. But I also knew... To look in the mirror and say, we have to start creating a revenue stream off of this whiskey. Mm -hmm. We can't just sit on it. So our first release of Ragtime Rye was a straight up, straight three-year rye whiskey. Mm -hmm. And as we got further underfoot and had this increasing number of, you know, hundreds, if not approaching a thousand barrels a year, we were able to start blending in. More mature and more mature whiskey that was increasing that range of nuance. So now, flagship Ragtime Rye, which is bottled at ninety point four proof, is a blend of three, four, mostly four, five,
0: and six year old rye whiskey.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Nice.
0: And so, if you had to say, do you think there? And you may not want to answer this. You don't have to. You think there's a sweet spot? To date, it, and it could change. But yeah. do you? And, and I know what you sent us as far as dates go, but sure. I don't want to speak for you. But is but are, are you hitting, or is it different based on where it's at when it's you know? We, I mean, it, it's it, or is there like, hey, this is what I'm. This is like my marquee, and when I'm hitting my sweet spot right now.
1: Yeah, for us, good is good. Good can be different, but good is good. Yeah. So I'm not. I don't want to evade the question. There's not one sweet spot at this point. I would say what's interesting is for flagship ragtime rye, that blend of three to six, we blend 13 to 15 barrels at a time. For our bottle and bond, which has the constraints of those rules and regulations, it's fewer than 10 barrels at a time. Mm. So I would say, yeah, I think four, post four, starts to approach a sweet spot that brings
0: me great delight. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, let's see. So we haven't talked about the shanty. I don't know if you want to, we want to go down the liquor road more. I'm going to talk about the shanty a little bit before we run out of time. How is that? Uh, are you up and running yet? What's New York looking like? Yeah, we're up and running.
1: You know, I, I won't sugarcoat it. You know, New York has been uh, unvarnished a calamity. Mm hmm. Um, I've I've lived in New York coming up on 29 years, all of it in hospitality. And it's been, you know, my greatest pleasure, uh, certainly professionally, to be part of the industry here and Mm -hmm. watch, you know, nothing lasts forever, but to watch things open and evolve in the range of creativity. It's what feeds us here. Mm -hmm. And And things are closed, and they're closed for good in many cases, which is a gut punch, of course. Um, It's a beautiful evening out here. (laughs) Uh, Things feel like, with some trepidation and caution, that they're starting to open up a bit more safely, and people are hiring for restaurant and bar jobs, which is very exciting. And we just, you know... Keep our fingers crossed that we keep transmission numbers down and we can keep opening things. The one thing that's a given is there's a boatload of money here <laughs> and lots of places. Sure. But yeah. there is a boatload of money. And as sad as it is and brutal as it is, that places are closed and there are for rent signs everywhere. Mm hmm. They will be reimagined into new spaces. Yeah, for sure. And and maybe for the sake of the hospitality industry, maybe they'll come back with with more favorable rents because we need to support each other. Yeah, landlords, business owners, employers, and employees. It's that stark a picture has been for the last thirteen months here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For us, <sighs> <laughs> I remember the day on March twelfth. It was a Thursday and we had a we had a little meeting of our team and we came up with our 6 week covid plan. <laughs> <laughs> and that was undersold shelved. undersold that one. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that was quickly shelved. <laughs> and um so we were the shanty is our bar. It's great rules and regulations in New York um as a quote unquote farm distilling operation meaning not that we are farmers ourselves. I am not a farmer but we source our grains from New York farmers. And to behold this license, you must source a minimum of 75% New York grown agriculture in at least one product that you distill. Our whiskeys are in essence, New York state grown agriculture. Right, sure. So with that license, we are allowed by our choosing either to have or in combination a tasting room, a retail outlet, or a bar with what we would call a full on-premise license. That's my background. (laughs) So we found a space that was suitable to open a great cocktail bar. We always called it, you know, for my, very honestly, fancier cocktail upbringing, you know, suited, proper, sometimes slicked hair, even bow tied. This was, a different course that's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We always called this the the shanty, our cocktail bar, you know, New York cocktail bar meets roadhouse. <laughs> one of my all-time favorite
2: movies. Uh, I, I thought you'd be bigger. Hey, Cal, we yeah. found our guy.
0: We found we, found him. It. we, we definitely got to get on for uh for Rye in a movie one night. Yeah, you
1: bet. <laughs> so this was our intersection of cocktails and roadhouse. And And, you know, in COVID, everybody's had to maneuver a little bit, figure out new rules and regulations by necessity. But also, fortunately, the state legislature and the governor and the state liquor authority by their direction has been exceedingly flexible and quick with new rules and regulations. And they've allowed just about all of us with a license to construct by our choosing outdoor space. So we have been for months focused on the shack at the shanty, (laughs) our new outdoor space. I love it. On Richardson street that, you know, we're diminished hours. We're open Thursday through Sunday. Now that the weather's nice, we've actually sort of, we sort of like a chef's table or series of tables on the weekends. We serve a few tables in the distillery We've been exceedingly cautious because of the blends of our businesses being yeah. the manufacturing. And we've got, we're, we're all one family in our business, but we have part of the crew that focuses on production and part of the crew that focuses on, you know, the hospitality and the service from the bar. And, you know, until, and we're close, but until our crew is all vaccinated and has that time frame for full vaccination, and we feel like we can safely serve people inside. We're holding off on indoor service. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shanty is a great but narrow space. Mm-hmm. So even at the current regulations, we might be able to have four or five tables in it.
0: So- yeah so did you and and I know you meant to jump in a second so i want to before you go you um, I didn't know didn't know you were gonna go down this road but so just with your history and and kind of your upbringing and you know working in the hospitality industry uh well you you get this you know in your mind's eye like hey i'm I'm gonna go make whiskey and now you've got an opportunity and you, you've got it's an it's an ore right you get a you get the tasting room, you get the full blown uh, cocktail bar or you get the gift shop kind of set up. did you did you know that going in or did that kind of happen? And you're like, well, hell, this played right into my hand.
1: Well, no, we didn't know it off the off the bat, but it was really ultimately predicated on spatial considerations. You know, it was the summer of two thousand nine, I believe and we had gotten the funding to to our prescription so to speak and we wanted to be on the up and up with any you know real estate brokers and we we had enough money in the bank then that we said well we could go out and sign a lease All right and we probably looked at 40 spaces and it's like anywhere else i don't think it's just new york regulations you can you can't be within certain footage of a school yeah. or mm-hmm. a religious building or a package store so to speak and what we said was the bar wouldn't be the guiding principle, but if we found a space that could accommodate it, let's take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately we did. Hmm. And, and, and over the years, we don't have any billboards up or magazine advertisement, <laughs> let alone any other kind of, you know, full flung, far flung marketing that the bar is really our local marketing And we get, in normal times, we got, hopefully we will again, people from all over the country, from other countries, because we're in a fun part of Brooklyn where there are other things to do. And you can come have a good time at a cocktail bar. It's not just a tasting room. So if you come with your friend or your significant other and they don't like gin or whiskey, well, have a beer have a cider, have a tequila sure. rum cocktail, you still get our experience. Mm-hmm. And the gleaning is, ah, New York Distilling Company, one, we're here, but two, we make our own juice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that's our marketing.
2: Perfect. that is. Yeah,
0: I, I think we've just been talking about marketing for an hour-ish. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Dan, I, I know you got a question that's on the tip of your tongue.
2: I know uh, you do. You covered most of the thing that we were going to cover. I can't think of anything off the top of my head.
0: Oh, well, I I can. Who's okay. your favorite character in Roadhouse? Well, then we're
2: going to do the whole we're going to do the whole breakdown of them. Oh, I'm rhythm. sorry. sorry. Yeah, Hold on. Do, you can you cannot so, say that. So, so no. you can
0: so think about it. think about that. Think about it. So, so real quick and I if you got a hard stop, let us know. <laughs> no, we're good. We're good. So, I want to talk a little about we didn't talk about the names. You probably talked about that dozens of times. If That's you want right. if you want to go, you can. I do want to get into a little bit of your slow food and and that story. So, you you steer as time permits. Go for it. I, okay, I, I'm good for at least ten minutes. Okay. All right. So um, you want to give us a run? To, so you're a music major, oddly enough, and now you're you're making whiskey. Uh, I, I don't know how one plays the other, other than there's an art to each, I guess. But uh, a couple of the names: so Dorothy Parker, Jen. Dorothy was a poet, writer, etc. Um, Mr. Katz Rock and Rye. I'm assuming since you're referencing Mr. Katz, that's not you. And then a music major. We've got Ragtime Rye. I, is there anything going on there? Well,
1: I sort of like the fact that it was. A couple of second fiddles, so to speak, not to use that as a pun, but, you know, ragtime in many ways, it had a very short-lived legacy at the dawn of the 20th century, but was a precursor to jazz for certain. And I sort of look at rye whiskey and bourbon like ragtime music and jazz music. And so it could be that simple. I like the alliteration also, but... um, But I like that. Yes, Mr. Katz is is more so in in homage to my father and grandfather, uh, you know, Mr. Katz and his father, Mr. Katz, because Rock and Rye was really of my father's childhood era. He grew up uh, in a little town in West Virginia, uh, skipping school, smoking cigarettes and going to the racetrack. And you might as well paint a picture of him and his teenage friends carrying a flask of rock and ride at the racetrack.
0: Sure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And uh, what about the Dorothy Parker piece? What was, uh, what, what? you know, she, she, you know, there is some
1: New York context to a lot of these figures that we've named our spirits after Dorothy Parker was a great, fascinating New Yorker. Um, yeah. I would say in earnest, we wanted to name a product after a woman. Um, It's not to say that Dorothy Parker gin is a ladies' gin. It's a very versatile gin. Mm -hmm. But she was a writer in an era where men and women, uh, frankly, did not drink socially in typical fashion in public together. And she basically blasted that in her writing and her action. And she was take no prisoners, you know, woman of the 20s, the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and someone i think a lot of people would emulate today but i'm also i'm just a big fan of her writing and uh see people think of her as a humorist she had a lot of funny quips and poems but she sort of just wrote about the realities of being a woman in the era that she lived in but she was a damn good drinker (laughs) she she hung she hung with the influential food and drink people of new york of her era and so that's why we felt it was appropriate
0: to pay respect to her and name it in, in essence after her. That's awesome. Okay. That's All cool. right. So, so yeah. before we close out, uh, and Dan's got some questions for you. I'd let the cat out of the bag on one of them, but you bet. so, so I've read some articles and we did chat a little about the whole barbecue piece, but, um, I think you're, are you on the board of directors for slow food or you were, you're the chairman. I, I was at one time. I okay. sort of,
1: it was a great, uh, uh tremendously influential experience for me, for 10, 12 years that I was uh, a a volunteer for Slow Food in the United States, Uh, a great organization, if you've never heard of it, you you look it up at slowfoodusa.org or slowfood.com is the international organization. And it was influential equally so in my sort of self-discovery about cocktails and barbecue and other food influences, et cetera. Um, But to be honest, it was right at the time that I thought, I want to open a distillery and I had a job also uh, and I, I just I couldn't I didn't have the capacity to do all of that sure at the same time
0: all right it, so I'm, I'm going to lead off with the first question yeah what's what's your favorite and and it can be I'm going to use the word cocktail it doesn't have to be a cocktail but if you're if you're having us over for dinner and there's one pair you're you're going to serve dinner for us what what are we getting what's what's our what's our beverage and food pairing Okay,
1: so a couple different things. If you're saying what's my favorite cocktail, it's a Manhattan. That is my deathbed cocktail. If we're saying it's for food pairing, I might start with a punch, mm. a gin punch called a Garrick Club Punch. I like this. And it's a delicious citrusy punch, most of all. Uh, and with Dorothy Parker Gin, which has a little bit of a fruit note to it, um, almost like a fruited jujube. If you know that candy, sure. This punch is not over overtly sweet. It has maraschino liqueur in it and you can top it off with just about any type of inexpensive sparkling wine. I use Prosecco a lot. Um, it gives it that effervescence. It's a great flavorful, lighter way to start. And, you know, this time of year, I could start with a Garrett club punch and any type of chilled seafood. Nice. So cold shrimp cocktail, cold crab meat, cold lobster, cold salmon, cured salmon, not hot, but cold, that if you just want to eat it on its own, you know, peel and eat shrimp, there you go. and eat shrimp is fine, warm, there you go, with <laughs> homemade cocktail sauce. First one, done. Nice. <laughs> if I'm going on to it, I, I can't boast it's too much booze for me to go pairing by pairing and just have cocktails. Oh, yeah. So I'm gonna go with wine mm-hmm. and at least you know uh, an intermediate course. Um, I'm probably gonna go uh, maybe with a second wine with a main course, but I could have wine and short pairings. And short pairings to me, I think I'd also keep it chilled. If I was going with whiskey, I'm probably doing some sort of whiskey sour variation, but with some other element, some other, by color, I don't mean the visual color. I mean the flavor color, mm-hmm. like a bitter ingredient in Amaro or an atypical blend of Amaro and vermouth, just to give some undertow of um, a bitterness, of herbal quality that might go with a sauce, say with whether it's a ribeye or a pasta course with a heartier, you know, pesto to it as well, that that pairs nicely. Making me hungry. And then we got to have a cheese course. You know, if you want to stick with spirits on a cheese course, I'm happy to do that. Uh, you uh, can stare stare us another direction. Um, you know, well, I'd go with beer.
2: Oh, okay. Beer makes and sense. Cheese. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm a, a big fan. Uh, I'll never forget the first time. Uh, I had Saison DuPont at the Slanted Door in San Francisco <laughs> in, I don't know, 1997 or 1998, and it it blew my head off in revelation. This beer, and Saisons in general, there, and it has a relationship, in my opinion, in many ways to, to gin, because for me, the Saisons that I became accustomed to have a real crisp coriander context, and the gins I love also do, but that coriander context in Saison DuPont, to me makes it so food-friendly.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you drink your coffee?
1: Uh, I, I will have an espresso after dinner. Oh, okay. In the morning, I'm a tea drinker. Oh, okay.
2: Mm.
1: And the, the caffeine didn't really do much for me, but I like sort of the meditation and habitual nature of steeping tea. Um, if I'm going out and someone's making a good coffee, I'll have a good espresso after dinner.
2: Nice. Cool. All right, Cal, we got to let him go.
1: We got to get an answer for the question. Well, you know, most people would say Dalton. Uh, but I'm going to take the Sam Elliott character.
2: There you go. Yeah. Take them, love that. Take them,
1: bro.
0: What do you say, uh, Mio? <laughs> Great movie. Great movie. I can't pain think don't of... Hurt.
2: Pain don't <laughs> hurt. That's right.
0: Hey, I can't think of a better spot. To, this may be the best finish that we've had on a glass of whiskey and on our show. Alan Katz from New York Distilling. We appreciate it so much. Real quick, um, where can people find you? Where can they find your spirits? Yep. And uh, how do they? What, what do they do to get you?
1: You can we we can ship just about nationwide, except to eight frustrating states that don't accept uh, uh, shipment of alcohol. But you can find us at uh, nydistilling.com, and you can find me personally on you know social media that type of thing at at nydistilleryman. <laughs> cool, cool. Love the name. Thank you both. Thank Alan you, Alan Katz. It's been There's a pleasure, you. sir. Hi. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Ah!